Welcome to Sagittarius Eye, issue 31, December 3306, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed out in the black. Editorial. In these days of seemingless endless gold rushes, what use are the small ships to a Pilots Federation member? Given anyone can be in a crate or a python seemingly in no time, leaving their sidewinder behind, undoubtedly with some sense of relief, and skipping past the old rites of passage, the eagle and the viper, why would anyone bother with these ships? In years past, the eagle was described as one serious piece of kit to get hold of, the viper as this fearsome ship, and the sidewinder as a cruel machine. Today, few would give these attributes to the aforementioned, but perhaps they need a second look. The Quarantine Cup races, for one, pitted the Viper Mark III and Eagle against each other in a raw show of speed and agility, demonstrating that these small ships, even if not particularly effective combat ships in today's highly engineered galaxy, remain enormous fun to fly, and are certainly worthy features of any commander's hangar, at least if they still have any passion about spaceflight. The Sidewinder is certainly worth a second look too, and so one of our intrepid writers takes one out to a couple of conflict zones to see if it still remains worthy of its old description. One place you're probably not taking any of these ships though is a trip through the Cygnus constellation, which will take you to the very edge of the Milky Way. But if you're looking for a scenic and somewhat historical voyage, our article on this subject will give you some recommendations on how to go about it. Finally, the second part of our series on hard points concentrates on the multi-cannon, a weapon that's economical with power and which has certainly remained popular these last few years. Our guide will get your knowledge of this fearsome weapon bootstrapped. The Quarantine Cup Races There is a long-standing rivalry in the world of live ship racing, and that is the rivalry between the Eagle Mark II and the Viper Mark III. Both of these ships are examples of masterful engineering, breakneck speed, and incredible agility. But for the longest time, neither has been able to secure a reputation as the sole best racing ship in the Milky Way. The Quarantine Cup, organized by Commander Crow, and officially sanctioned by the Elite Racing Federation, aims to finally put this rivalry to rest. The Quarantine Cup, unlike other racing series, has its host of skilled competitors flying under the banner of either Team Eagle or Team Viper, and flying said ship for the entirety of the competition. Points accrued by individual commanders throughout the race for top positions in each heat will be applied to the proscribed team. By the end of the series, either the Eagle or the Viper will finally, once and for all, be crowned the King of Racing. In following suit with previous racing coverage, this correspondent once again decided to not only cover the action, but also to participate. What better way to cover a major event than to thrust yourself right in the midst of the action? The first round of the championship took place on the 19th of September, 3306, at Felicity Farseer's own Farseer Base in Deciat, a well-known course, long famous in the racing scene. Eleven pilots, including this reporter, lined up for the three scheduled heats. 
The familiar nerves and jitters of racing could be heard manifest across the race time comms as banter and taunting were broadcast across several channels. Heat 1 turned out to be a racing clinic delivered in tandem by Commander Arkinson and Commander Sanderling, both flying for Team Viper. Both pilots handily dominated the course during their respective race blocks and even managed to lap several of the racers. Fewer than half the pilots were able to finish without crashing out of the heat. The second heat proved to be a near repeat of the first. Both Arkansan and Sanderling put on a show, demonstrating incredible speed around the many loops and tight turns of the course. In contrast, this Sagittarius Eye reporter managed to wedge his Viper within the confines of a bridge, unable to extract the unfortunate ship for over two minutes, finishing with a truly shameful time. The final heat of the day proved to be the most exciting. Arkansan and Sanderling appeared ready to repeat their dominant performances, but on the start, Commander Sanderling was clipped by another racer and sent tumbling into the canyon wall, crashing spectacularly. Due to this unfortunate DNF, Commander Arkansan was able to easily top the field in Heat 3 and subsequently the entirety of the event. Commander Kate Baltazar was also notable in Heat 3, winning her block of the heat. With the incredible performances from Arkansan and Sanderling and consistent finishes from the rest of the Viper pilots, Team Viper finished the day a full five points ahead of Team Eagle. We spoke to Commander Kate Baltazar, one of the pilots racing for Team Viper, and the winner of Heat 3, Block 2, after the race, she said, I talked a big game for someone who bought two DNFs. I'm glad I sealed the deal for that last one, though. Also, big thanks to Celine Jean for single-handedly keeping my ass in the race with that heavy-duty Grade 5 deep-plating modification. The second race in the series took place on the 3rd of October, 3306, at Vonneberg Cooperative in the Word System. This race followed a standard tried-and-true Orbis course layout, that would require pilots to navigate obstacles outside the station and make regular mail slot turns as a marker for every lap. With the amount of racers on the line, there would surely be a high chance for collisions within this confined area. Heat 1 would show Commander Arkansan once again up to the same level of racing prowess as he steadily pulled away from the rest of the racers lap by lap. Unfortunately, Arkansan's biggest rival, Commander Sanderling, crashed out after a collision with another racer. Arkansan kept up a blistering pace throughout and finished well ahead of Commander Barron, who came in second. Heat 2 focused on a battle for the second place on the podium between the Sagittarius I reporter and Commander Kate Baltazar. Unfortunately, the incredible fast Sanderling crashed out yet again and left Arkansan to cruise to a seemingly easy victory. During the course of the race, an unfortunate collision between this correspondence Viper and Commander Liam's Eagle resulted in a DNF for the latter. The battle for second between this reporter and Kate raged on, but in the end, Kate Baltazar came out on top. In the third heat of the day, 
The surprise came from Commander Baron, who gave Arkansan a run for his money. Baron was nipping at the heels of Arkansan for the entirety of the heat, but Arkansan held strong, even after a near crash while exiting the mail slot. Arkansan finished the day strong for Team Viper once again. Things were looking dire for Team Eagle, as Team Viper eventually came out a full 15 points in the championship lead. In the lead-up to the third race of the series, there was a great deal of talk about the upcoming race course. The course, built around a Nautilus-class carrier, would be an entirely new concept and layout for ship racers anywhere in the galaxy. Many wondered if the course would hold up under the high standards set by the Elite Racing Federation and its decorated history of racing achievement. Prior to the race, we spoke with Commander Arkinson and asked him what he thought of the course. In typical Arkinson fashion, he responded very briefly. The loops can be confusing after some laps. Lots of people will probably get lost on Saturday. I can tell you that I'm excited though. It should be a lot of fun. The third race of the Quarantine Cup took place on the 31st of October 3306 at the fleet carrier Diamond Dog MHG6VZ in the Lacale 9352 system. The big news coming into this race was the fact that Commander Sanderling, commonly known as one of the two fastest racers in the series, would be unable to attend due to scheduling conflicts. This would leave Commander Arkinson as the clear favorite. Heat 1 was an exhibit of focus and speed, and comms were eerily clear as the racers focused on completing clean laps on this tricky course. Arkinson took an early lead and was chased by this reporter and Commander Liam. Liam had several close calls, but was luckily able to get his ship back on course. Arkansan finished the race in first with a comfortable lead over this correspondent, with Liam finishing third. Heat 2 started much in the same way as Heat 1, but a battle for the lead quickly ensued between this reporter and Commander Arkansan. Vipers clashed, swooping dangerously close during the tight loops across the bow of the carrier, but in the end, Arkansan maintained his place on top of the podium. This correspondent finished in a disappointing second, with Commander Liam in third, and a newcomer to the racing scene, Commander Novo Amor, coming in fourth. In the third heat of the day, it became obvious that the racers had gotten significantly more comfortable with the course. Previously disorienting loops and twists around the carrier had become much less of a problem and had metaphorically parted ways to make room for flow and speed. By this point, Arkansan could not be stopped. He seized a comfortable lead early in the race and held it without struggle, handily showing the field who the best racer was. While official championship points have not yet been calculated, it is clear that Team Viper has a significant lead as we proceed into the final stretch of the series. Will this championship end in a massive blow to Eagle Mark II pilots everywhere? Will Team Eagle find a way to push back into contention? We will know the answer to these questions and more by the time this series wraps up. Make sure not to miss the action. Ships 
you wanted to forget. The Sidewinder. It's the ship that almost every pilot has flown, at least for a short while, and today thought of as merely the training wheels of space. Most pilots who start out in one of these fly it for just long enough to get something else. Anything else. Anything that's not a Sidewinder. In the opinion of most, the Sidewinder in 3306 is one of the most forgettable ships in existence, outclassed by, well, nearly everything. It wasn't always this way, and perhaps, and we'll come to this later, we're being unnecessarily harsh on this venerable design. The Sidewinder first appeared on the scene in 2982, designed by Falcon de Lacy and built at the now long-gone Onrira Orbital Spaceyards, operated by the Spalder and Starblaze Company. The ship was designed to a Galcop Navy specification and typically used as a support ship. The first Sidewinders had no hyperspace capacity, the expectation being that the Sidewinder would be carried by a much larger vessel between star systems. It started life with a dual laser installation plus a missile launcher. By the 3200s, the ship had gained hyperspace capability, lost a hardpoint and gained some cargo carrying capability. A total of 25 tons if you decided to turn a pure trading fit. 55 years ago, the celebrity used spacecraft seller Big Bob Iscati had this to say about the Sidewinder. If killing is your business, then a ship like this will ensure that business is always good. Lethal from laser-tipped engine. This is a cruel machine that instills an almost heartless quality to your bounty hunting. Which is probably why I sell so many of them. Everyone wants to be a bad guy every once in a while, right? You could use it for trading if you wanted, I suppose. But then you lose your powerful laser. Your only attack mechanism is removed, which leaves you deader than leaves on the line, if you get what I'm saying. Strong words indeed about a ship that most pilots today want to forget. While today, the Sidewinder once again has two hard points, if you want a budget killing machine, a Sidewinder is about as far from your thoughts as Beagle Point. Most would rather settle for a Viper or, if they have some favour with the Empire, a courier as their weapon of choice when it comes to a small, nimble killing machine. The poor Sidewinder, by contrast, ends up being the victim of, in today's vernacular, the Seal Clubber. Those who would seek to send brand new Pilots Federation members on their first rather unpleasant Remlock ride back to the station. Is the Sidewinder really relegated to nothing more than a trainer, deserving of its degrading nickname, the Noobwinder? Well, probably, but the ship has had its moments to shine even in this decade. In recent years, there has been a small resurgence of this basic vessel from those who aren't afraid of taking a Remlock ride from time to time. And let's face it, you're never going to be faced with a big insurance bill if you're flying a Sidewinder. An occasional sport, which harks back to the early days of the Sidewinder as a killing machine, has emerged using a build that's nicknamed the Surprise Winder. Usually roving gangs of four Sidewinder pilots equipped with railguns would interdict and attack much larger vessels, the commanders of which would wonder why they were being interdicted by what they assumed was such a puny, poorly armed and poorly shielded ship. 
This assumption would put them off guard until the three wingmates also flying sidewinders arrived, at which point the hapless commander came to the embarrassing realization that they'd just been ganked by sidewinders. Take, for instance, the Holovid shot in 3302 of four surprise winders dominating a Gutamaya Imperial clipper that was fitted for combat. It's quite an interesting piece of footage. You may not be able to see the clipper's pilot, but from his actions you can imagine what was going through his mind. First, the surprise of being interdicted by a sidewinder. Then he thought, this should be easy to handle in my combat clipper. Followed by his shields going down, as it turned out all four sidewinders were far more nimble than him, rather difficult to hit, and were equipped with railguns. At last, with disbelief, the horrific reality sank in that he'd become the victim, at which point he ran, only to be interdicted once more and rather brutally sent back to the station in his remlock. The entire battle lasted less than three minutes, and it was rather reminiscent of a pack of hyenas setting upon a wildebeest. It isn't just Pilots' Federation members who have found themselves surprised by a sidewinder. The Thargoids have also had a taste of what Falcon de Lace's cheapest ship can offer up. On the 13th of January 3306, Commander Maligno achieved what was thought to be impossible. In an epic battle lasting some 92 minutes, he defeated a Thargoid Medusa in open space. While the Sidewinder was sorely lacking in damage per second, it made up for this in speed and stealth. We can only speculate what was going on in the minds of the Thargoids, but it's reasonable to assume that, like the human victims of the Surprise Winder, there must have been some transition from confidence to surprise, and finally to the acceptance of victimhood. But other than a slightly unhinged Thargoid hunter, who today would waste time and materials actually engineering a Sidewinder? Well, this correspondent for one decided it was worth the effort if only to write this article. Naming his humble ship Geoffrey de Havilland in honor of the pioneering aerospace engineer, he set out to find what a Sidewinder, when taken to its logical conclusion, could do. This exercise did not start auspiciously. Two of the aforementioned SEAL clubbers, Commander Matrix Hazu and Duke on Steroids, saw fit to destroy the unarmed engineered Geoffrey de Havilland in the Desiat system, and this writer can be certain that they are proud of this great and heroic feat of combat. The Remlock ride was as unpleasant as ever, but of course, the Sidewinder's prime advantage, its low cost, meant the rebuy was trivial. Things began to change once some level of engineering had been done. Once fitted with enhanced performance thrusters, naturally fully engineered with a dirty drive modification, the Sidewinder's flight characteristics were totally transformed. The stock Sidewinder goes from a relatively plodding top speed somewhere in the mid-300s to an easy 730 meters per second, with a violent level of acceleration that seems to want to force your eyeballs through their sockets and out the back of your head. With flight assist off, it responds precisely and quickly to all control inputs, and with four pips to engines, can almost perma-boost, which certainly makes up for an exciting canyon run should you try one. Suddenly, the survivability of the ship increases tenfold, as does the fun factor. On a subsequent trip to Farsia, Inc., 
Commander Neotantrix decided to send this writer on a Remlock ride of shame, and in fairness to Neotantrix, he was not seal clubbing but rather wanting to settle a score with the East India Company, with which this author is associated, but discovered that his heavily armed alliance challenger couldn't even take a ring of shields off the Geoffrey de Havilland before it was well out of weapons range. The engineered Sidewinder is not just fast and agile, but small and hard to hit with fixed weapons, and no longer has much of a problem getting out of the kind of trouble it's not equipped to handle. In the interest of seeing what a Sidewinder could do in today's galaxy, and indeed whether Big Bob Iscati's description of a cruel machine was still valid, this writer took the ship out on a variety of combat missions to discover firsthand what the Sidewinder could do. For this test, the ship was fitted with a pair of railguns, with a short-range blaster modification, something which significantly increases damage per second and is a very powerful upgrade for any combat pilot who prefers to stay close and personal with their adversary. After the railguns were fitted, one of the Sidewinder's shortcomings became very apparent. A lack of power. Even more so after prismatic shields were fitted. Engineering using the enhanced low-power modification did bring power usage back within limits, but left nothing over for a shield booster. The first exercise for this upgraded Sidewinder was to fly to a few resource extraction sites and see what it could do as a bounty hunting ship. It did surprisingly well. Against small and medium-sized adversaries, the rail guns proved to be highly destructive, even if the heat level critical warning was nearly constantly sounding. The ship's nimbleness meant that the shields never went down, and it was always possible to evade an adversary should they get into a position to fire. The biggest shortcoming was the limited ammunition. In an effort to overcome the lack of ammunition, the plasma slug experimental effect was applied to both of the railguns. The plasma slug mod is highly useful for railguns as it means instead of a solid projectile, the ammunition is synthesized from the ship's fuel supply. However, this simply resulted in the ship running out of fuel alarmingly quickly. Of course, additional fuel tanks can be fitted, but the extra fuel mass robs the ship of some of its maneuverability and speed. Even so, it remains quicker and nimbler than most of the adversaries you will find in a typical resource extraction site. The second exercise was to take the ship to a conflict zone. These tend to be tougher, there are far more enemies and no asteroids to hide behind, and the enemy ships have much tougher shields and hull and better weapons. A low-intensity conflict zone was chosen and the Geoffrey de Havilland went into battle, engines screaming. This turned out to be a far tougher assignment. Against the less nimble medium ships, for example asps and pythons, the diminutive Sidewinder acquitted itself extremely well insofar that it was able to always remain in a position where the enemy could not strike back and keep pounding away with the railguns, as much as the fragile heat limits allowed. However, dispatching an enemy turned out to be an incredibly slow process. Railguns are good, but there's only so much damage output a pair of railguns can do, especially if you can't add thermal vent weapons to your ship to take the heat away. Against the smaller and more nimble targets such as eagles, while a good hit with the railguns would do significant damage, trying to keep these small ships in the crosshairs for long enough to make two or three hits turned out to be more challenging. In each of these exercises, though, the Sidewinder could always escape thanks to its raw speed. While on occasions an enemy would land some shots, 
it was always possible to get out of range to allow shield strength to rebuild. No Remlock rides were taken in either the resource extraction sites or the conflict zones. So, to conclude these two exercises, does Big Bob Iscati's declaration that the Sidewinder is a cruel machine still hold true? In the opinion of this writer, this does indeed remain true, but only because the victim will face a slow, drawn-out, painful, and overall entirely humiliating demise, with much emphasis on slow. In today's world, almost any other ship is a far better choice for the practical combat pilot. On the other hand, the Sidewinder, once engineered, is a fun ship to fly thanks to its nimble handling and good top speed, enough so that any pilot wanting a bit of a break should have one in their hangar, if only to take out for a joyride every other Sunday. The Cygnus Constellation Like many others, the Cygnus Constellation is deeply intertwined with Earth mythology. In this case, the Greek god Zeus transformed into a swan and seduced the Spartan Queen Leda, by which she then became the mother of the famous Helen of Troy and also of the divine twins Castor and Pollux. Cygnus is not only a mythical place where gods go swimming though, it's also one of the richest and most well-surveyed constellations of the heavens. It's home to some of the largest structures of the Milky Way and also the place where the first bright radio and x-ray sources were discovered in the early 20th century, spurring the rise of radio astronomy. It's also the site of the Cygnus Rift, a vast band of dust and dark clouds stretching across multiple constellations, which obscured many of the constellation's treasures in pre-spaceflight times. These are the signature black bands observers saw from Earth back then, when they looked towards the centre of the Milky Way. Travellers wanting to get a sense of direction can enter Chai Signai into the Galaxy Map search interface. They will then be rewarded with a bright supergiant, seven times the size of Sol, and a pointer in the general direction of the constellation. Chai Signai also has a landable planet in close orbit, so pilots wanting to send their first holofact postcards home can take some good shots here. Another interesting star system is Four Cygni. It includes an intensely bright blue supergiant and a massive Herbig ABE protostar, but is more widely known for its galactic record setter. The system holds a total of 21 T Tauri stars in its clutches and is a reminder of just how powerful the process of star formation can be. Next, there is Alberio an orange giant star of 60 solar radii with a smaller blue companion. Early Earth astronomers found this combination very beautiful and resolving it was a popular test for amateur optical equipment. This is in fact Beta Cygni, although the galaxy map fails to mention this and only the system map identifies the companion as 6 Beta-2 Cygni. Let's take a break from popular stars for the moment and have a look at some other treasures the Cygnus constellation holds. Nebulae. One of the most magnificent deep sky objects of the Cygnus constellation is the Veil Nebula. 
NGC 6960. Travellers will find out there is in fact one nebula designated as Vale West, also called the Witch's Broom, and one as Vale East. Both parts, and several other objects, belong to a far larger structure called the Cygnus Loop, a supernova remnant that over the last 10 to 20,000 years has developed intricate filaments of dust and gas, giving the whole structure its particular beautiful look. Close by, explorers will find the constellation's brightest star, Alpha Cygni, also known as Deneb. It's an exceedingly bright supergiant of 116 solar radii, which is thought to be expanding further and becoming a yellow or red hypergiant before exploding in a supernova in several million years. There is a landable planet in the system, which is also a good source of the rare element Niobium. So, explorers may wish to stock up for some for their Jumponium Reservoir. Curiously, entering just Deneb into the galaxy map will yield as many as seven different entries. This is due to the fact that Deneb comes from the Arabic Danab, which translates as tail. And as we all know, the constellations have quite a few heavenly animals, each one with its own tale to tell, if you forgive the pun. Also, close by, in astronomical terms, lies the Sadra region, IC 1318. It is so named after its principal star, Sadra al-Dajadjet, or just Sadra, Gamma Cygni, a hot supergiant of 225 solar radii. The star ionises the surrounding gas, creating a rather diffuse emission nebula, which gives the region its name. A good number of protostars surround the nebula, and the area is a good first waypoint on any expedition into the galactic west. A small mining enterprise has made it into the area, the Sadra Logistics Depot. It's located in the nearby Sadra region GW-WC1-22 system, in a hollowed-out asteroid. Travellers can replenish their supplies and enjoy some basic amenities here, but not much else. The next entry is a bit of a conundrum. The location of Cygnus X-1. Cygnus X-1 is one of the strongest sources of X-ray radiation found to date. It was discovered in the 1960s when the two dominant superpowers on Earth began to spy on each other and on possible nuclear weapon tests in orbit. Geiger counters carried by primitive rockets picked up cosmic rays. These were then traced to the first galactic sources of X-rays and Cygnus X-1 was the very first one calculated to be a possible black hole. Galactic coordinates were quickly established, but there the conundrum begins. Another designation for Cygnus X-1 is V1357 Cygni, which refers to the O-type parent star from which the black hole frequently accretes matter. Both components can be found in that system, due to the high energy level of the black hole's violent outbursts. It was later designated a microquasar. So there we have Cygnus X-1. However, V1357 Cygni also has the entry number 226868 in the Henry Draper catalogue of bright stars. But when you search for HD 226868 in the galaxy map, you get the Star of India instead. 
which is a regular O-type star located much closer to the bubble. The name, Star of India, in turn isn't found in any other star catalogue. Its origin remains unclear, the closest association being a star-sapphire gemstone of the same name in Earth's distant past. It's quite likely that this is one of the not-so-uncommon hiccups that occurred when the Universal Cartographics uploaded ancient stellar data into their Galaxy Map software in late 3300, prior to its presentation to the civilian sector. There are two other outstanding nebulae in the region. They were once thought to be two separate entities, the North America Nebula, NGC 7000, and the Pelican Nebula, IC 5070. Both are brightly coloured nebulosities that belong to the same ionised hydrogen emission region and which are separated by thick layers of interstellar dust. This gives the illusion of two nebulae and the complex is riddled with fine filaments of dust contrasting with lighter patches where the ionising radiation has swept them away. Astronomers have long looked for the source of the nebulae's illumination and the only star massive and energetic enough to power the process would be HD 199021, a nearby binary system with two B-type stars. Somewhat off the main exploration route lies the Cocoon Nebula, IC 5146. It's reflection nebula that's embedded in the Colander 470 cluster, a moving group of stars that was thoroughly observed by the two mass surveys in the past. One of its signature stars, V1578 Cygni illuminates the gas cloud the cluster is currently moving through, much like the Pleiades. Travellers are advised that a number of other smaller nebulae and a vast amount of Hipparchos, Hip and Draper HD catalogue stars lie between the North America and the Cocoon Nebulae. Too many to be detailed within the time constraints of this audio broadcast. The smaller nebulae are mostly supernova remnants and compared to other nebulae, they're rather local, albeit beautiful, objects. Another larger nebula in the Cygnus constellation is the Crescent Nebula, NGC 6888. It's part of a larger molecular cloud and is an emission nebula powered by a number of young massive stars. The nebula is thought to be a result of the bow shock of extreme solar winds which resulted in its particular shape. Pilots will see all interstellar dust being pushed away from the younger stars, much like a wave front. It's also one of the few nebulae that emit X-rays, strong indicator for the energy levels involved. Close by lies another heavy hitter star system. KY Cygni is still thought to be one of the largest stars ever discovered. It was once estimated to be between 1,500 and 2,400 times the size of Sol, although different theoretical models about its size existed during the 21st century, frameshift drives made it possible in the 3300s to get all data first-hand. Its size then had to be revised downwards. The red supergiant is a behemoth of only some 1,060 solar radii, placing its photosphere around the size of Jupiter's orbit, for comparison. Another massive star is HIP 101364, or Cygnus OB2-12. It's designated a blue-white supergiant. It seems to be in the process of contraction, since at this time it only has a size of 1.3 solar radii. The star is part of the massive Cygnus OB2 association, 
a widespread cluster of younger stars, and star formation in general, ten times more massive than the Orion complex. OB2 is also part of Cygnus X, a giant molecular cloud spreading across thousands of light years with millions of solar masses worth of gas and dust. HD 1936-34 is another giant member of Cygnus OB2 and will most likely consume its neutron star companion in a gamma-ray burst sometime in the future. Then there is the system with the odd designation XTE J2012 plus 381. The system was part of the X-ray Timing Explorer missions, XTE, in the last years of the 20th century. XTE was in fact a dedicated mission to survey strong sources of X-rays in star systems, then believed to be emitted from compact stellar bodies like neutron stars or black holes. And they found two black holes orbiting an F-type star in this particular system. One above 90 solar masses, which indicates it must have accreted surrounding matter for a very long time. Explorers interested in more XTE objects can use the acronym in the Galaxy Map search interface, as quite a few are stored therein. Beyond XTE, explorers may wish to visit Tomatu, an informal name given to a peculiar system by the Galactic Mapping Project. Apparently, the term translates as Sons of the Wind. And who can blame them when you read the official designation of Eusonst AA-AHO? It's a binary system consisting of an extremely volatile Wolf-Rayet star and a blue hypergiant with a whopping 442 solar radii. The hypergiant can be identified as a bright, solid disk from more than 450,000 light seconds away. Another of these informally named systems is 11 in a row, or Fogia HG-X D1-1. And it's also another galactic record breaker. The system consists of 11 main sequence stars in an intricate primary orbit constellation where they all form intricately balanced pairs or triplets. The stars are 1.8 billion years old, so it seems no passing object has overly disturbed them so far. There are also two landable planets in the system, so explorers can take some respite while cruising around in their SRVs. A completely different peculiarity awaits any traveller further out, the Sidgoya permit lock sector. Although its borders have been surveyed multiple times in the past, the reason why the Pilot Federation locked this sector for hyperspace travel remained completely unknown. Unlike its counterpart sectors, Bovomet, Frodek or Hyponia gave rise to much speculation and tinfoil hattery. Far out, near the fringe of the galactic disk, lies Cygni X-3, another microquasar and powerful source of X-rays. The system lies on the galactic plane and was inaccessible for a long while. With the advent of fleet carriers, however, it has been thoroughly explored. It contains two black holes in close orbit, producing relativistic jets of particles and extremely energetic gamma rays. It was once thought to also hold a Wolfreyet star, but this must have shifted back to its regular B-type spectrum in the meantime. From here, and in fact from anywhere this far out, travellers can finally enjoy a view, mostly unobstructed by stars. Finally, 
star 1 or Bayar Thoi GC-D D12-0. Presumably is the last star before crossing the intergalactic void towards the Andromeda galaxy. It is reachable after a number of jumponium-powered hyperjumps of a hundred light-years or more. Congratulations. You have reached the rim of the Milky Way. A hard look at hard points. Multicannons. Multicannons. Nasty. Mean. Ruthless killing machines. These revolving barrels of lead can shred even the strongest of hulls. You've seen what lasers can do, but these weapons are a light show on their own. Use them wrong and you'll end up biting off more than you can chew. Do it right and you might be able to leave behind salvage components in your wake, assuming anything can survive the fury of such a firestorm of bullets. Every commander has had a heavy metal bad boy equipped on their ship before, but not all of them know just how capable they can be. Multicannons use considerably less power than their energy-based counterparts and have a maximum range of 4,000 meters, one kilometer more than lasers, with their optimal distance being 2,000 meters, four times that of lasers 500 meter fall-off distance. These kinetic projectile launchers have a spin-up time, but it's just long enough for the warrior to broadcast, lock and load it on public comms before unleashing a rain of bullets upon their target from two kilometers away. Although nearly all kinds of multicannons are similar, there are a few key differences between some of them that we will be going over, along with some gratifying combinations that can be done with engineer access. You might be skeptical already. How can physical bullets shred ship hulls when nearly all commanders have shields, you might ask? Those teeny little machine guns, those are the multi-cannons you're bragging about? Instead of starting with class 2 again, we'll look at the beastly class 4s right now. Beastly, again with the overstatement? On the contrary, just the barrel of the Class 4A multicannon is five times longer than the height of the average human. The whole behemoth end-to-end -end, is nearly 14 times that in length, with almost two times the height, excluding the mounting point itself. They also do 28 DPS, nearly five units more than the class below it. For a negligible 0.09 of a megawatt more power, with an armor piercing of 68, nearly double a class 2's rating, they can pack quite the punch. And was it mentioned that this higher caliber variant also has no spin-up delay thanks to its double twin barrel design? With that out of the way, let's get tinkering, so we can punch a few more holes into some unlucky ship's plating. Like laser weapons, you shouldn't use them stock or for that matter, by themselves. They are, after all, kinetic weapons. You should pair them with another weapon that can take down shields quickly, like lasers, or if you're going against other top-ranked mercenaries and want to really show off your elite skill seconds before they explode into a fiery ball of molten slag, 
plasma accelerators, but that's a weapon analysis for another time. Suffice it to say, they haven't been called devastators for nothing. Now, smaller ships don't benefit from multi-cannons as much, but they are a good option for novice fighters who don't have the credits for a frag de lance or larger ships with more hardpoint options, allowing for better and more powerful combinations. Target shields offline. That's your cue. A lone medium ship, agile with a decent amount of hardpoints, like one of the crate variants, could use its top mountain multi-cannons to strike their foe. Class 3 multi-cannons with the overcharged modification can do 83 DPS to hull and 69 to shields. The knowledgeable among you might ask, why not an efficient modification? Well, despite the 15% ammo clip size decrease, overcharged cannons can still fire nearly twice as long as a standard clip can, because of a little ace up the barrel, auto-loader. On 3C multi-cannons, you lose 15 bullets in the clip, but with this effect, the cannon can reload while firing. This, with an almost 75% damage increase, three times that of efficiency's effect, is far more powerful than almost any other design for solo warriors. Don't bother with flow control and rapid fire. Multi-cannons are kinetic weapons, consuming little power but also having limited ammunition. These modifications might sound useful to the uninitiated, but they're not worth it. Another effect of note, which would be better utilized with wingmates, is the corrosive shell. Like the overcharged modification, corrosive shell does decrease clip capacity, but by 5% more. However, it can not only debuff targets when the shots are landed on the hull, the corrosive inflicts 25% additional damage from any source. Even other attackers, fire lasers, deploy mines, or boost up to ramming speed. Whichever you do, just know it'll hit hard. While the effect isn't stackable, meaning the corrosive debuff doesn't increase per hardpoint with the effect, it makes sense to have at least a pair of them, since each bullet landed has a chance to reset the corrosion's timeout as it diminishes in effect after melting a target's plating. This makes it significantly easier to carve your name into the hull, as all weapons have a 20-point increase to their piercing stat. Quite the penetrator. If your wingmates like to get up close and personal to their targets, or you prefer to fly alongside system security, the smart round effect will automatically detonate bullets that reach a target that isn't selected. No matter who they are, if they're not target locked, no damage will be done, avoiding potential friendly fire. Likewise, emissive munitions can light up a target for 10 seconds, leaving them unable to hide their thermal signature no matter how many heatsinks they deploy. Each connecting round to the hull, like corrosive shell, has a chance to reset the debuff's timeout and keep them a shining star in the sky, just waiting to be snuffed out. Target destroyed. There you have it. Another hard look at hardpoints. This time, we took a look at multi-cannons, machine guns that have a place on medium and large ships. Cannons and fragmentation cannons are similar, 
but have a couple of different options for their experimental effects and are more suitable for a niche kind of combat commander. Multicannons are more likely to be the better choice for most and pair well with other weapon types. Remember, they have limited ammunition, long range and do kinetic damage. With the combinations and styles explored in this article, if utilized well, you can say hasta la vista baby to most commanders or pirates that dare fly in your way. Thank you for listening to issue 31 of Sagittarius Eye. This issue featured articles written by Andrew Gaspar, Ariri Osashes and Mac Winston and was edited by Adernis Lee Lockhart, Vertical Blank and Mac Winston. This audio edition featured the voices of Beetlejude, Scott Cleverton, Kai Zen, Catisfaction, Wrangler Actual, Rini and Burr and was edited by Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll and Toko So. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by Commanders for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Development's PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. 